Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. Continuing our celebration of Black History Month, today we'll hear from a man who is making history as the first black mayor of the city of Whitehall. And I'll chat with a Columbus woman who is passionate about placing black girls at promise. Plus, we'll hear about state politics from Doug Petcash of Face the State. First up on Columbus Perspective, Michael T. Bivens has made some black history of his own. He is the first mayor in Whitehall's 76-year history to be an African-American person. Also, he was the first black person elected to the position of city attorney in Whitehall. Having lived in that community for many years and in the central Ohio area, Mayor Bivens has a lot to do with Columbus's history, and we are so honored that he's here joining us today. Hi, Mayor Bivens. Thanks for being here on Columbus Perspective. Well, Kate, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you as well as uh, to your listeners. Well, we're very excited that you're here, and I have a feeling we have a lot to learn from you. To start, where did this all begin? At what point did you say, public service, I want to hold public office, I want to give back to my community? Wow. Yes, that um, that's a great question. In fact, I um, started my career practicing law. That was in 2003 uh, when I started my own, my own practice, and I was just out as a solo practitioner um, fighting the good fight. In fact, my, my motto uh, when I was a lawyer uh, was, when it's wrong, we make it right, um, because I had always learned uh, with my mother that serving others is probably one of the most honorable things to do. And so I practiced for about 12 years uh, doing a lot of criminal litigation, civil litigation. And while everything that I was doing from that vantage point was very advantageous to my clients, I knew that I could do more if I could get into the policy side of of what could actually be a lot more effective in serving the community. So I ran for a city attorney in the city of Whitehall, and I have not looked back, and it's been one of the greatest honors of my life. I enjoy getting up every day to serve the public. Mayor Bivens, you mentioned your mom in your list of inspiration and um, and what kind of motivated you. In a lot of the coverage that you received when you were elected and sworn in as the first black mayor of Whitehall, it was mentioned that you grew up in a single-parent household and actually experienced homelessness in your upbringing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, ma'am. I, my mom, first of all, was, uh, was the greatest person um, I've ever known. Um, in fact, I, I feel so honored and privileged and lucky to have had a mom like her because she was limitless in her thinking and limitless in her ideas. And she always stressed exposure and education. And so we grew up, I grew up in the seventies. And so in the (laughs) seventies, it was nothing for her to, you know, jump in a, in a Greyhound bus and, you know, just travel uh, the country. And it was just she and I. And so we moved from uh, Columbus to Los Angeles, California, uh, with no family, uh, no safety net, and that's the period of time probably from the age of six to maybe eight. Um, we lit, No, we came back to Columbus when I was about 10. So from six to 10, uh, I lived in uh, California. But when we first got there, there was a period of time where we were homeless. Um, we lived uh, in an area between Compton and Watts, 
And we were literally on the streets, either in homeless shelters or, you know, alleys or a friend uh, that would give us a a couch to, to sleep on. And I say that with a smile on my face because my memories of it are some of the fondest memories of my life. It, it was not a negative experience for me. And that's all the way in part of the way that my mom uh, characterized and the way my mom uh, pushed that experience on me. Um, she always made it to where we're not going to feel sorry for ourselves. We're going to be honorable. We're not going to get into criminal activity. And we're going to also look at the fact that, you know, as long as we're educated and as long as we are hopeful, then the possibilities are endless. You often hear that type of story, that type of narrative from people who go on in life to achieve great things, that they grew up with some adversity, but a parent or a key figure is someone who flips that script and says, yeah, yeah, (laughs) this is challenging, but we're going to get through it and it's going to get better. Absolutely. That's my mom. Wow. That's really, that's really impressive. Mayor Michael Bivens is an attorney, a former Marine, and a history maker as the first black city attorney and now mayor of Whitehall, Ohio, the Columbus suburb, of course. We're honored that you're joining us here today on Columbus Perspective during Black History Month. In your first few weeks after being sworn in as mayor, um, what can you tell us about the experience of, of your new elected office? Well, let me start off by saying it is uh, my first uh, few weeks of this experience. I am completely convinced that it was the right decision for myself, uh, for my family, but also for the city of Whitehall. Um, I've come into this office, you know, obviously learning how to do this job because being the city attorney is a different lane. I, I was only seeing the work that was coming to me. But now as the chief executive officer in this seat, now it's all about inspiring uh, the employees of the city of Whitehall to give their put their best foot forward so that they can serve the residents of the city of Whitehall. And it has been I it's been a great decision. I'm so excited about the possibilities ahead for the city. Mayor Bivens, what are some of your main priorities at the moment in in sort of a broad sense? What are you looking at over the next, say, 90 to 120 days? Sure. The the main priority right now is building confidence. When you follow a mayor that's been um, been in the seat for 12 years and you're in a lot of ways the new guy, a lot of people want to know, are you going to come in and tear things down or are you going to continue the progress? that they were used to having over the past 12 years. And so my main priority is letting everyone know that a lot of the programs and projects that were initiated are definitely going to continue, you know, to the extent the budget can support it. But then also at the same time, there are new programs that are coming based upon the unique way that I see the world and the unique way that I inspire others that really put the city of Whitehall in the best position uh, to be a, a regional partner for all of the innovation that's coming to Central Ohio. Absolutely. And that is quite a bit of innovation that we keep hearing about. I'm struck by your description, though. It sounds really like any other job. A new boss takes over and everyone gets nervous. My comfort <laughs> zone is about to be disrupted. <laughs> I can only imagine. I can only imagine the the pressure when you're actually in charge of a city and you've got employees worried about that too. 
What's been one of your biggest surprises since taking office? Uh, One of the biggest surprises is the is is how um, how much the people that work for the city of Whitehall really want to serve um, the citizens. And they get up every day like our like our street services, uh, especially when it comes to uh, to ice and, and snow abatement and removal. I mean, these guys are dedicated to making sure that that they uh, that they get the job done, but not just get it done with with grumbling faces. They want to make sure that every resident in the city of Whitehall is served in that way. But not only that, the, the public safety side, not our chiefs, uh, Chief Moore for our fire department and Chief Crispin uh, for our police department, their their commitment to changing and, and maintaining a culture of service in those departments. I was not in those meetings as city attorney, but I've been in those meetings now as mayor, and I am extremely encouraged about the future of our city. You're raising your family in Whitehall, and many, many other people are, of course. What what is one kind of wish list item, if you could, with no limitations, achieve one thing in office as mayor, what would that be? It would be it would be to raise the standard for every single resident in the city of Whitehall that they get to experience every single uh, promise that America offers. And I know that that is such a, an aspirational statement, but I believe that. And the reason why I believe it is because it gave that to me and my my family. We were we were thirty ish when we moved to the city of Whitehall over twenty years ago with small children and we didn't know a lot of you know a lot of our neighbors but we got in and we got involved and we exposed our children to the to the public school system they're now both uh, one is a college graduate the other one is about to graduate from college and they have job opportunities and that's what I want for every single resident um, in the city of Whitehall not just college but even trade or you know any other job opportunity so Thinking about community partners and, and the businesses that come here that would be interested in recruiting and hiring the, the residents of Whitehall, that's what I want uh, for the city. Mayor Michael Bivens, the first black mayor in the 76-year history of Whitehall, newly sworn in. Is there anything else that we have not yet touched on today? No, I really appreciate the, the conversation. I really appreciate the questions. And I invite anyone that ever wants to call me or talk to me. Um, I'm here. I have an open door policy, and I really look forward to having the conversation as long as it's about moving uh, Whitehall forward. Thank you so much for your time today, Mr. Mayor. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. When you take a walk around your neighborhood and notice all the things that make it feel like home, like all the houses lying neatly together in a row, or your neighbor, Miss Rita, who always waves at you when you drive down the street, or that movie theater in the strip mall that might look a little worn down but has the best popcorn you've ever tasted. One thing might be a little harder to notice because somewhere tucked in that neat row of houses is hunger. It could be your next door neighbor or your co-worker or your daughter's friend from school because over 30 million Americans don't know where their next meal is coming from. Hunger lives in neighborhoods all around us but it doesn't have to. Together, we can provide a billion meals by 2030 because everyone should be welcome at the table. Learn more at nourishingneighbors.com. 
Let's break the cycle of hunger together. One in four Americans today are living with a disability. I'm one of them. I care deeply about creating a world we can all fully participate in, free from stigma, misperceptions, and barriers. And we've got a trusted ally on our side, an organization we can rely on, Easter Seals. Rooted in communities nationwide, Easter Seals helps empower millions of people, regardless of age or disability, through its life-changing services and powerful advocacy. Today and every day, Easter Seals is leading the way to full equity, inclusion, and access to healthcare, employment, and education for people with disabilities, families, and communities. That's my Easter Seals. Make it yours. Learn more and get involved at EasterSeals.com. This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett, and Placing Black Girls at Promise, that is the mission of an organization based here in Columbus called Black Girl Rising. Black Girl Rising, Inc., in fact. Fran Frazier is the founder and president of this organization, and she's joining us today on Columbus Perspective so that we can learn a little bit more about what they're doing in our community. Hi, Fran. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Kate. Tell me, what started Black Girl Rising? You as the founder, when and and how did this all begin? That's a good question. So probably maybe now, 15 years ago, um, I got a call from then the Ohio Department of Mental Health, uh, who knew about my work with Black girls. Uh, I had been working um, on, on relational aggression issues with black girls in school settings around the country. And um, Leslie Brower uh, called me and said, um, we're interested in looking at mental health in the black community. And we're wondering if you're interested in working with us. And I said, actually, I'm, I'm more interested in looking at the mental health of black girls. And so we kind of went round and round about that. And but then they said, okay, we'll we'll do that. I was really happy that um they said yes to that because the story of black girls is so misaligned that it was really important to make sure that we heard clear voices of black girls from themselves. So I partnered with the State Department of Mental Health, worked with their research department, which was incredible. And we surveyed, well, created the survey. Um, there were probably about 500 items on that survey. So it took a long, well, it, let's see, middle school girls, it took about an hour. High school girls, it took them about 45 minutes. Because we we did a little testing to see how long it would take for girls and if there would be test fatigue in the middle of all of that. Uh, but they did pretty good. Um, they were they were the girls that we uh, tested out were a little um, intrigued by all the questions we asked everything. 
So once they gave us their feedback, we tweaked our survey a little bit and uh, still asking all the hard questions. And we surveyed 411 black girls in four Ohio cities, Columbus, Dayton, Akron, and Lima. Uh, Sandy Stevenson, who was the director at that time, wanted us to look at three metro cities and one small city that had a large black population. And so that's what we did. Dr. Laura Belliston Cobb, who is the dearest friend, um, was the research analyst for our survey. And she and I and several other members of the research department began to take a look at all this data we had. And then once we had a really good sense of what the data was saying, we shared it. Uh, we went back to all of those cities and shared the data with um, elected officials, city leaders, school administrators, mental health people. And then um, there were a group of women in Columbus who said, um, so what do you want to do with all of this? And we decided that we would offer programming based on what the research said um, about 411 Black girls and what the research specifically said um, from the 100 and I think 111 Black girls that we surveyed in Franklin County, Columbus specifically. And so we started creating programs based around that. Uh, our name at first was Rise Sister Rise. Uh, but when we decided to incorporate so that we could kind of really institutionalize what we were doing, um, we changed our name to Black Girl Rising. And so we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization now. And when was that name change? When did you establish the organization? How many years ago? Uh, about 10 now. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, it's overwhelming in a sense to think about what you're describing. What, um, what were some of the major takeaways when you did that initial surveying that you found were kind of needs, issues, things that needed to be addressed across the board? I would imagine while each of those areas, each of those cities that you described are different, they probably had some things in common? Uh, actually, they did. Um, a large percentage of the girls came from single-parent homes, either uh, households run by moms or households run by dads, uh, but single um, parents uh, nonetheless. That was one thing. Um, we also noticed that even though our girls felt very comfortable being Black girls, they faced racial discrimination, and they 
they wish they could be treated in a more complimentary way. They liked being who they were. They liked their culture. Uh, but being a Black girl was difficult uh, because of their race. A significant portion of the girls had been bullied, uh, threatened, uh, witnessed violence, either in school or in their communities or even in their home, and did not have the did not have the skills to handle conflict resolution very well. They wanted to, but just did not have the skills. What else can I tell you? We gave the girls at least um, six different surveys. Um, we gave them the ACE, ACEs survey, which is the adverse childhood um, experience. We um, gave them the search institutes adolescent uh, behavioral study. Um, we wanted, some of the issues that we really wanted to look at had to do with somatic kinds of issues. Are you healthy? Um, do you have headaches a lot or body aches? And one of the things that we do know is that stress, everyday stress, and with many Black girls, it was chronic stress, um, shows up in, in their bodies, uh, shows up in headaches, shows up in body aches, and not knowing exactly where they come from. So we wanted to take a look at that as well. We also know that um, because of body shaming, uh, our girls don't actually stay in their bodies. And so we wanted to uh, provide activities where our girls could not only accept the bodies that they were in, but stay in those bodies. Um, so we do a lot of mindfulness. Uh, we do a lot of stress reduction. Um, we certainly do a lot of self-regulation, helping girls to regulate their behavior so that they can feel better about where they are and, and, and how to take care of themselves better. Fran Frazier is the founder and president of Black Girl Rising, Inc. And this all sprouted, as she's telling us, about 15 years ago out of the need to take a look at mental health in the Black community. And Fran, specifically in her extensive and expert research, has focused on young Black women and the different challenges that they face. Fran, in the 10 to 15 years since this all began, what can you tell me about the the outcomes, the results? What are some of the, you've kind of begun to tell us some of the, the activities that you're doing. Um, what are some of the programs which have, have come forth out of this? Pretty much. We have, um, because of wonderful funding from the Adam Board, we have been able to literally move towards um, our theme of placing um, Black girls at promise. 
Um, we hold summer camps. Um, we have yoga classes. We do a lot of, um, oh, annually we have something called Love Yourself Day. And it's it's really a phenomenal kind of day. Um, we introduce the girls to aromatherapy. We introduce the girls to hand massages. I had no idea how much tea girls love. <laughs> so we have been using teas as a way to help girls self-regulate. You know, so there's a tea when you have a period. Um, peppermint tea is good when you're getting ready to take a test. Um, chamomile is good to go to sleep. Um, a good caffeine tea can keep you awake. Um, so actually, we bring someone in who um, is really a tea guru. And she talks to the girls about different kinds of teas how to use them um, medicinally and um, literally how to enjoy um, teas. We did this one time and it was so successful as a part of our Love Yourself Day that we do it every year now. Um, another program that we offer is uh, Black Girl Summit. And this is a opportunity for girls in the community to hear about the work of our Black Girl Think Tank. We started a Black Girl Think Tank about seven years ago. We had a really large conference at the downtown high school about seven years ago. And we asked the girls, what are you worried about? What do you think about all day? What do you care about? What are your beliefs? What do you stand for? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? Um, and what do you think about all day outside of boys? And um, we took all of that information that the girls had given us and created other programs from that. Uh, one of the programs that we started, well, let me, let me get back. So, I got, Kate, I have too much in my head about Black Girl Rising, so I'm trying to stay focused here. You're doing great. So, we, we invited girls to take a look at all the data that we got from that conference. And so, we, we invited all the girls to come back. 30 girls did out of 143, I think. So 30 girls came back and we had them to put all the data, like everything that a girl thinks about. What does she care about? What does she worry about? And then they began to really disaggregate the data and take a look at it. And eventually we kept inviting them back. And we ended up with eight same 18 girls who showed up the first time, kept coming back. And we decided that maybe we could start a think tank where girls can go a little deeper into these issues that are affecting the mental and emotional health of Black girls. 
And so that's what we did. So we taught the girls critical thinking. We um, promoted um, community building among the girls and how to communicate across barriers, how to have a conversation, even if you don't agree with what the person is saying. And truthfully, it turned out to be pretty phenomenal. The girls looked at all the data and decided that there were six areas that literally affected the mental and emotional health of Black girls, um, where there was no conversation publicly, privately, or within the Black community about those issues. Consequently, Black girls were suffering. Body shaming teen depression, LGBTQIA+, um, lack of conflict resolution skills, bullying. And the girls decided that they wanted to have a mental health campaign specifically targeted around Black girl issues and, and, those, um, and those issues. So... They created a campaign called I Am Good Enough. And they spent the next two and a half years having Black Girl Summits. We brought in national speakers to talk about body shaming, to talk about the adultification of Black girls, to talk about developing conflict resolution skills. Every year, the girls uh, participate in a self-defense class and how to use their voice as power around conflict without getting into fights. We looked at how the Black community responds to their homophobia and the fact that our girls are looking at their sexuality and really wanting to have conversations about that. So, Kate, that's what we've been doing. <laughs> One of our girls started dating and um, she was sharing in our, in our sister circle that she met a guy that she really liked, but she asked, she said, he told me I was attractive. He told me he liked my body. She said, but he never said, I like the fact that you are an honor student. I don't like the fact, she said, he didn't say, I like the fact that you are active in school, that you get good grades. And so she said, I, I think we need to do something about that. So every year we have, <laughs> Every year we have this conversation with boys called Get Woke With Us. And we've taught our girls how to facilitate small group dialogue. So the girls facilitate conversations with boys and other girls about relationships with boys and relationships with people that you have romantic interest in. And, um, but, but through a black girl lens. Uh, so it's been, <laughs> it's been really interesting 
especially to watch boys walk out after a whole day of, oh my God, I didn't know that. Oh, I'm apologizing. I'm so sorry. It's, it's been really something. Uh, but it really helps, I think, how girls and their partners kind of respond to each other in a different way. And it gives our girls um, a platform and a voice to say how they really want to be treated. Fran Frazier, you are a force to be reckoned with, I do believe. And you are out there doing the work, doing the research. That's that's most striking is that this all comes from a very strong foundation of research and of asking the questions that perhaps had not been asked before. Black Girl Rising Inc. is the organization. Blackgirlrising.net is where you can find more information online. Fran, I wish we had more time because I feel like you could tell stories and talk about this for for quite a while longer. It's embarrassing, Kate, but yes, I could. No reason to be embarrassed. It's fascinating, and uh, I'm so glad to hear that you're doing this. Thank you very, very much for your time and for sharing with us here today on Columbus Perspective, and hopefully we can we can chat again in the future about about more of your wonderful successes. Actually, I look forward to that because we um, have launched a, a Black Girl Suicide Prevention Campaign. Wow. And um, I would love to share that with you. And I really thank you for reaching out to us. Every 40 seconds, a child is reported missing. That's 2,000 children every single day. It's a heart-wrenching reality that we can no longer ignore. Find the Children is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping find missing kids. You can be a part of their mission by donating your unwanted vehicle, running or not. Call 1-800-294-0222. We guarantee that you will receive the maximum tax deduction. We provide fast, free pickup with 24-hour response. Call 1-800-294-0222. Find the Children provides crucial resources to help find missing children and educational materials to teach kids how to recognize and avoid predators. Our recovery programs have a proven track record of reuniting kids with their families. It's time to act. Donate your unwanted or unused car. Help us build a world where every child is safe. Pick up the phone and call 1-800-294-0222. Together, we can bring these kids home safely. This advertisement was paid for in partnership with Cars R Us and Find the Children. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. The YMCA is just a starting line for the true self-blooms only when we find our purpose, what makes us tick below the surface. My why is diversity and unity, a safe space in my community, living with sincerity, giving every day my everything. With my why, I stand strong, seen and supported all along. It's a million faces in a mirror and everyone belongs. Find your why. Learn more at YMCA.org for a better us. This is Columbus Perspective on the fan. Now courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen next Sunday morning at 1130 on 10 TV. On January 24th, the Ohio State Senate voted 24 to 8 to override Governor Mike DeWine's veto of the controversial transgender medical care and women's sports bill, House Bill 68. The House did the same two weeks earlier. 
The law will go into effect in late April, 90 days from the Senate vote. However, the ACLU of Ohio announced it is preparing to file a lawsuit aiming to halt the law before it takes effect on April 23rd. The law would ban some forms of gender-affirming care for minors in Ohio, including gender transition surgeries, hormone therapy, and puberty blockers. The law is known as the SAFE Act, which stands for Saving Adolescents from Experimentation. It also bans transgender student-athletes from playing girls and women's sports. The ACLU says it is specifically challenging the ban on gender-affirming medical care for transgender minors. In a news release, the ACLU of Ohio legal director, Frieda Levinson, said HB 68 violates the Ohio Constitution. Quote, We are preparing litigation to defend transgender youth and their constitutional right to receive medically necessary health care. The use of gender-affirming hormone therapy to treat transgender minors is supported by every major medical association in our country. Transgender youth, together with their doctors and parents, should have access to evidence-based medical care just like anyone else. Families should be able to make these private, personal decisions based on the advice of their physicians and free from interference by politicians. House Bill 68's primary sponsor, Republican State Representative Gary Click, responded to the ACL's lawsuit with a statement saying... The announcement of the ACLU lawsuit comes without surprise. They have a storied history of inventing fictitious rights while opposing actual rights, such as those enshrined in the SAFE Act. Children have a right to grow up intact. He goes on to say gender-affirming care is a slogan, not science. Sex changes for children and counseling without parental consent are not the types of civil rights embedded in our Constitution. I have complete faith in Ohio Attorney General David Yost's ability to defend the SAFE Act. Joining me now to discuss this and other topics before the legislature is Republican Senator Teresa Gavarone of Bowling Green. She serves as the Senate Majority Whip. Senator, thank you for being here today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get to that. Um, what you know, th- These legal challenges were expected. Leaders have been talking about that you know, they knew this was going to happen. But what is your take on the ACLU's lawsuit? Well, again, I'm really not surprised that they would do this. But... House Bill 68 is really about protecting children. Um, We do a lot of things. We pass a lot of legislation to protect children in Ohio, and there are a lot of things kids can't do. I mean, they're limited in the hours they can work and the kind of jobs they can hold. They're they're not able to buy alcohol or smoke cigarettes Mm -hmm. or, you know, now even marijuana. Why? Because their brains aren't fully formed. They're not, they don't have the maturity And this bill is about protecting children. I mean, who you are at age 13, 14, 15 is not who you are Mm -hmm. later in life. So let's give children a chance to be children. And when they're adults, they can make those decisions. What about the argument, though, that this takes away that power from the parents and their medical providers? This gives children a chance to grow up intact and be children. Certainly, if there's therapy and parents' consent, children can have consultations and therapy and uh, continue to work on behavioral health challenges they may be facing. Gender dysphoria is is a medical condition. And children will be able to, with the consent of a parent, we need to make sure parents are involved in these decisions as well. Mm -hmm. So if a parent consents, the child can have have that mental health counseling. Mm But before any life-altering gender hormones or medical procedures are performed on children, 
they've got to be an adult to make those decisions. I want to talk about uh, several different topics okay. with you today. Um, first of all, um, very you know, high-profile story about, the, about Alabama recently executing a death row inmate using the method of nitrogen gas hypoxia. Mm-hmm. Two state representatives introduced a bill here to add the method of execution, this alternative here in Ohio. Um, where do you stand on that? Well, the death penalty has been a topic of, uh, of discussion uh, quite a bit at the State House, and this is uh, a new tool. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been an execution in Ohio in, in several years, and this would be a new tool in Ohio. But when you're looking at execution, we have to uh, remember this is an important tool for prosecutors, especially when we're looking at um, the most violent criminals. Mm-hmm. who are even subject to the death penalty. And we have to remember the victims. You know, there's always so much focus on, on the, the criminal, the, mm-hmm. the defendant in these cases. We have to remember there are, there are victims and their families who deserve justice. And this can be a tool to help mm-hmm. bring about a more speedy resolution for those families and justice for them. Lawmakers also introduced a couple bills recently to eliminate the state income tax over the next... Uh six years or so. How do you feel about that law? Do you think that's a good way to go? Well, I certainly believe that uh, your hard-earned money is your money and not the government's. I believe in in lowering taxes. As a matter of fact, in our recent budget, we made historic tax cuts for all Ohioans. I think $3.1 billion staying in your pockets, uh, which is important. And we collapsed the tax brackets from a few years ago. It was nine tax brackets, and now we're down to two which is important. So I'm looking forward to going through the details of this legislation and seeing um, you know, what, you know, how that income revenue is being you know, replaced to make sure we're funding services. But I think it's a conversation worth having. You started to answer my next question, actually. The Ohio Department of Taxation did say it collected $13 billion in personal income taxes in 2022. And those are a major source of funding for schools and Medicaid. So, you know, how do you replace a revenue source like that? I'm certain we'll be having a lot of discussions and, and they'll I'm looking forward to hearing about the plan for replacing those funds and how we can uh, go forward. Okay. Do you think um, that this could end up leading, though, to a higher sales tax, that, you know, that the argument would be that that would impact lower-income people more? I'm looking forward to the details. I, I haven't had a chance to uh, study exactly how this revenue would be replaced, but I'm looking forward to learning more. Okay. Now, just a few weeks ago, um, you introduced Senate Bill 215, which would um, prohibit foreign national contributions for ballot issues. Why is this necessary? What prompted it? Well, it's really important. As a matter of fact, it's it's an extension of current law. So current law for the past few decades, you have not allowed you have not been allowed to accept contributions from foreign nationals for candidate races. Mm -hmm. So this extends that to ballot initiatives. Um, we've been hearing more about these uh, large contributions going into different organizations such as uh, 501c4s um, from foreign nationals to influence our ballot initiatives. Mm-hmm. You know, so did this come out of the votes for issues one and two on abortion and marijuana? No, it didn't. Um, it, it's really a very bipartisan issue. It's something that uh, 
the vast majority of Democrats and Republicans agree that we should not be having foreign nationals influencing our elections. You know, our Constitution should be decided by Ohioans, not influenced by people from other countries coming in, trying to change the landscape of our state. Mm-hmm. And speaking of bipartisanship, you also, um, along with, uh, I guess, uh, Senator DeMora, introduced uh, was it House Bill or uh, Senate Bill, excuse me, 137 um, about ranked choice voting. And it would ban ranked choice voting, which, as you know, it's basically voters can rank their candidates in order of preference rather than just choosing one. This bill would ban that. Why is that necessary at this time in our political life? We've been working really hard to make sure we're increasing transparency and creating greater voter confidence, getting timely results to our elections. And people look to Ohio as a leader, and there's always room for improvement, but uh, people can count on election results pretty Mm -hmm. much the night of the election. You know what's happening. What this bill does is it, it completely undoes any kind of transparency. It confuses voters. The tabulation process is, is really confusing. As a matter of fact, there was an error. There, there was a case in California where they used ranked choice voting and they certified the election results. And then afterwards, someone was doing some research and found they made a mistake in the tabulation. And after the results were certified, it took months to fix and and put the correctly uh, elected person into place in that position. So what does that do for voter confidence? And if voters can't see how that tabulation process is, it it really has been found to reduce voter turnout. It takes longer. It can go through. It can take several weeks to come up with a result. And for each tabulation, increased costs to our boards of elections. So it undoes a lot of the good work we've been, we've been trying to accomplish here in Ohio. So we want to ban it. And where does that stand right now? That's, that's a fairly new bill as well, right? Yeah, it's in committee right now, and we're having uh, conversations, looking forward to uh, having some more hearings in committee. Senator Teresa Gavarone, thank you so much for your time today. I do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope to have you again. I'd be happy to come back. Thank you. <laughs> Thinking of buying a home, the Ohio Housing Finance Agency can help. We have programs designed to help make home ownership part of your future. The Ohio Housing Finance Agency's Ohio Heroes, Grants for Grads, and Your Choice Down Payment Assistance programs are all designed to help make purchasing a home affordable. To learn more, visit myohiohome.org. Sponsored by the Ohio Housing Finance Agency, aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. Parenting is hard. Technology can make it harder. The family media plan developed by the American Academy of Pediatrics helps make it easier. Go to healthychildren.org forward slash media plan to create the media plan that's right for your family. Whether you make a full plan or just choose a few parts that matter the most to your family, healthychildren.org forward slash media plan is an easy-to-use tool that will help your family set media priorities and create healthy digital habits in line with your family's values. You'll also get practical tips to help make the plan work. And you can come back to revise your plan as often as you need to, like at the beginning of each school year or during summer and holiday breaks. Raising kids in the age of screens is easier when you have a plan. 
go to healthychildren.org forward slash media plan and make your plan today. Uh-oh, Brad's buzzed. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's starting with the woots. <laughs> and now a speech. I just want to say that friendship is about heart, heart and brain. Who's with me? Good thing is, he knows when he's buzzed. And my brain is saying, when it's time to go home, somebody call me a ride. Love that guy. Me too. Know your buzzed warning signs? Call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. Here's more from Face the State, courtesy of 10TV. It's a new debate over the death penalty after Alabama became the first state to carry out an execution by using nitrogen gas hypoxia late last month. A few days later, Ohio Republican lawmakers introduced a bill to allow the execution method here. The state of Ohio has not carried out the death penalty since 2018. 10TV's Tara Jabor looks at why lawmakers are pushing for this. Some Republican lawmakers want to find a new way to carry out the death penalty in Ohio. Nitrogen hypoxia is an alternative method for carrying out capital punishments that has, made, that has been made available in other states. If passed, the law would allow inmates to choose between lethal injection or nitrogen hypoxia. But if lethal injection is not available, then nitrogen would be used. This is a method that the attorney general spoke to that is uh, humane and, and most people would find to be reasonable. And so, uh, you know, we're trying to arrive at a method that can gain the broadest Support. Attorney General Dave Yost supports this bill. He says the average wait time for someone on death row is about 21 years. This is, this is not something that should be taken lightly. But at the same time, there are crimes that are so heinous, that are so against basic humanity, that they deserve the ultimate punishment. A.G. Yost says lawmakers need to decide the future of the death penalty in Ohio. He pointed to families of victims that have been promised the death penalty in their cases, but haven't gotten justice. We at least owe it to ourselves and to everyone else, including those jurors who had to look deep in their souls to render this verdict and other verdicts like it, to own it and to say we've changed our minds and to express the reasons. We asked Governor DeWine about his stance on the death penalty, and he says he won't comment on the bill because there hasn't been any movement yet. Even if, if you believe in the death penalty, um, if you had 10 things to do to reduce crime, 10 things to save lives, the death penalty would probably not be on that top 10 list. If you look at the average time it has taken between uh, you know, the actual offense and when the death penalty has been imposed when it has been imposed and actually carried out. You know, it's a long, long period of time. Tara Jabor, 10TV News. It can be fun and exciting to bet on the big game, but if you're betting too much, even when the games aren't so big, it might be a problem. Do you watch for the game, the commercials, the halftime show, all of the above? And do you like to have a little skin in the game? The Super Bowl is a big sports betting event with bets on just about anything you can think of surrounding the game. And this year it comes just after the one-year anniversary of legalized sports gambling in Ohio. A state report shows more than $7.6 billion was wagered on sports in Ohio in 2023. But gambling leads some people down a path to problems, financial and otherwise. Today we're looking at the trends in addiction treatment in Ohio since sports gambling became legal, why gambling in general 
General hooks some people and how to avoid the pitfalls. Mary Haven Inc. is a nonprofit organization that helps people and families dealing with addiction and mental health challenges through education, treatment, and support. Mary Haven specializes in addiction recovery and says its clinicians and counselors have served more than 300,000 men, women, and adolescents since 1953. The organization started helping clients struggling with gambling in 2009. Joining me now are Mary Haven President and CEO Oyama Garrison and Mary Haven Gambling Program Administrative Coordinator Abdullah Mahmoud. First of all, both of you, thank you for being here today. Well, thank, thank you, you. for having us. Yeah, Appreciate you. your time. Oyama, first of all, for you, just let's talk. Since legalized sports betting went into effect last January, what have you seen in terms of you know, numbers of calls or clients and, and, uh, for treatment in your facility? Yeah, well, Doug, first and foremost, I mean, this is a very relevant topic for us to discuss. We often talk about beating the stigmas around traditional addictions that we tend to know, whether right? substance use, mental health, those kinds of complexities. And we often overlook this particular issue when we think about gambling. There's a thin line, right? There's fun gambling where people can engage in some level of activities and can control themselves. It may only involve or get themselves involved in the office lottery pool once a year. But let's just face it, what we have seen as specifically in the state of Ohio since January 1st of 2023 when online sports betting went in, at Mary Haven alone, the call volume quadrupled within the first few weeks from individuals that are saying, listen, I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm finding myself spending more and more of my time online on these applications and spending more of my money I think I need help, but they don't always recognize the signs. I mean, let's just face it. In the first three quarters, the Bureau of Economic Analysis suggested that Americans spent over $400 billion in the gambling industry alone. And we have seen the fallout with some of those who do not realize how compulsive gambling addiction can be. And our team has been on the front lines for quite some time. Quadrupled. Quadruple. Wow. So with that in mind, Abdullah, mm-hmm. is there a typical story that you see in someone who is coming to um, to you for help, or is, is it a broad spectrum of folks? And this is more anecdotal, but what we have seen here at Mary Haven and with my clientele is that you know people started betting and gambling on sports even before it was legalized in, uh, in the state of Ohio. With people going to offshore websites, you know, betting and gambling as soon as they you know, turned 15 to 16 with their friends and peers. And then as well as when it became legalized, it had more opportunity to do so, and it becomes a problem for those individuals as well. How about demographics? Is it, you know, younger people, older people, different socioeconomic backgrounds? Yeah, with my clientele and what we see across the state and across the nation is usually, you know, young Caucasian males between the ages of 18 and 44. And and more particularly, you know, in those demographics, you know, we see an uprise in those um, ages of between 18 and 26 as well. Is gambling addiction similar to or different than other forms of addiction, mm-hmm. say, for substance use? Substance use and gambling can be very similar in terms of, like, affecting the brain, you know, the prefrontal cortex, you know, it being uh, having that dopaminergic response in the brain as well. But it is so financially driven. You know, finances are the cr- critical component to this disease and addiction to where people become financially devastated. They take out a second mortgage, you know, refinance their car, 
um, to where it becomes financially devastating. And people chase their losses. They have that compulsive need to break even. So it's unique in that sense. Yeah, and Oyama, this probably isn't just financial, though, because that can leak over into other aspects of a family's life. Yeah, typically what we see is we see co-occurring conditions that often uh, result with respect to gambling addiction. So they may also find themselves abusing alcohol, abusing drugs. Uh, We've also come to learn that statistically speaking, one out of two problem gamblers also find themselves being domestic violence abusers. Hmm. And so we often will see that level of of family dynamic that plays out and the ability Mm -hmm. to also lean in from a counseling perspective to ensure that we can provide the right level of treatment. We see type A personalities. Mm-hmm. We see people of all walks of life. We've also seen a spike in the number of African-American males and Hispanic males who have also been affected by online gambling and addiction. How does your facility help families? Maybe there aren't all the gambler, but how do you help families? You know, one of the greatest things that we do is we've been the number one provider in the state of Ohio for gambling addiction treatment. So our clinicians and our therapists are trained. And what they do is they sit down with not only the individual, but the family that is ultimately impacted because it's everyone. Everyone is involved in this process. And it's really trying to make certain that they can understand the signs and the symptoms that are associated with that loved one that may have that level of an addiction and how they can also help. And then also helping those family members get the help that they need because here's what ends up happening. When that compulsive disorder has hit, oftentimes by the time it has peaked, in most cases, the financial position for that family has been ruined. They may have lost their home. They may have lost a job. They may have lost all kinds of, of components of that family structure. And so our therapists and clinicians at Mary Haven are trained to help them get the resources that they need to get back on their feet and to be able to start function as a loving family environment again. Uh, Abdullah, we're heading up to the Super Bowl now. Um, as, a, as a counselor, as a, as a uh, therapist, what do you recommend for people so they don't fall into those the pitfalls of, of addiction? You know, know your limits, set your limits, um, and not in just terms of how much you're going to wager, but time spent gambling as well. You know, the National Council on Problem Gambling has partnered up with the NFL to air those commercials as well during the Super Bowl and throughout the season. So you should be able to see, you know, uh, responsible gambling tips on your television uh, this season around, including the Super Bowl, of how to bet responsibly. Um, and people know, but people, some people don't know. And, of course, when that compulsion takes over, when there's more time spent gambling and wagering and betting, um, then it becomes a problem for those individuals. And so, Oyama, then, if somebody knows that they or someone they know needs help, someone they love, what can they do about reaching out for help? You know, there are a number of resources that are available out there. Uh, first, and foremost, we, first and foremost, we always ask you to go out and visit with us at maryhaven.com. There's mm-hmm. also a national program, as well as I'll ask Abdullah to talk about, there's another statewide program where they can reach out. There are phone numbers that are available, uh, certainly a lot of online resources that can assist them. The thing that I want to make sure that we also understand is with addiction relative to gambling, it is actually has the highest suicide rate. One out of five problem gamblers end up attempting and or committing suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling with gambling, you can call the National Problem Gambling Helpline at 1-800-GAMBLER. It also offers text and chat services. It's not a crisis line, but they do offer support, information, and referrals to services for help, such as Mary Haven. If you or a loved one is in crisis, then call 911 or 988. 
Again, that's Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen next Sunday morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1, The Fan.